Welcome to Azure Ability, a podcast for everyone interested in the art and science of developing solutions for the Microsoft Azure platform. Each show brings insight from the folks who know Azure best, including the cloud solution architects who help Microsoft's leading clients devise the most innovative and interesting solutions on the planet, as well as the engineers and program managers who build Azure itself. Listen in and you'll be sure to speed your journey into the cloud. And now your host, Lewis Berman. Hello, and welcome back to the Azure Ability Podcast. I'm excited to have Brian Woodworth here today. He's a global black belt in, well, I don't know what a global black belt is in. It's a Microsoft thing that helps some of our best customers and everything. We'll have Brian explain what that's all about. But I'm going to ask him some embarrassing questions before we really get into the meat of it. And the whole purpose of this day is to really, really talk about all sorts of things Azure, in this case, networking, security, express route. But I don't want to talk about the technologies, you know. I don't want to list about what's new. I want to talk about sort of the approach and how you feel about it. And then, again, I'm going to make fun of you and me because, you know, that's the way this stuff works, and I apologize, but that's the way it works. So, Brian, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself, what you do. Sure. Thanks, Lewis. I am a global black belt that's considered a technical solution architect role in the Azure uh, kind of enterprise family. We have one foot of incubation where we are creating innovative solutions based on lab work, experimentation, mad science, but the end product needs to be polished and supportable. But then we also enforce best practice standard and design using off-the-truck products and solutions. So it's basically kind of a half-mad solution architect. So just to be clear, I don't care about that. You're being so official and stuff. Tell me about mullets. Ah, oh, thanks, Lewis. You know, I mean, let, let's start at that level, you know, and then we're going to talk about this stuff. This is supposed yeah. to be fun. So everyone, you know, has their experimental phase. Mine in college was hair. So I took it upon myself to grow and cherish and maintain this fantastic mullet. That is so awesome. It is awesome, yeah. I was listening to a lot of metal at the time. I still listen to metal. I grew up in rural North Carolina where that hairstyle was acceptable in some circles, and this was something I, w I wanted to try. And my first two years of college, I was never successful in getting a date. Cut my hair and decided to go back to a short look. And a week later, I had my first date. Yeah, and it's really important to understand he's a tall, good-looking guy. I can't imagine Not that true. was absolutely true. <laughs> Maybe the mullet was really, really bad. And so that's okay, but you're like a super smart dude, too. You're like a musicologist, which I don't quite understand what that is. You lived in Austin, is that right? That so is correct. Ju just on that alone, I think everything else should be wiped out. You know, I mean, that's cool enough. Thank you. Yeah, that cancels out the mullet, I, I hope. I have something to, to remedy that. I, I do have a, a previous professional life prior to being a network or data center architect. I was at UT Austin to do graduate work there, getting my master's and then very close to completing my PhD in a field called ethnomusicology. My focus was first Latin American music and then popular music, where I found myself as a professor teaching history wow. of rock and roll. Yeah. That is so cool. Just not really connected, whatever. I arrived in Seattle, where we are today. I arrived on Saturday in advance of a big event that was happening all week called Ready. And so I had nothing to do on Sunday. It turns out right near my hotel, the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle was playing Rock of Ages. So I ended up going to Rock of Ages, which is sort of like – 
a little bit of a survey of like all the best rock songs of a certain period of time. So I don't know if you'd agree with that, you know, but sort of a fun thing. So I guess we have to talk about technology. And actually, the funny thing is, you know, this is about Azure, Microsoft's cloud offering. And, you know, I, for one, love Azure. I think Brian loves Azure. He's clearly enthusiastic about it. And so the reason I know Brian is because even though I pretend to be a guy who knows a lot about this, a cloud solutions architect working for Microsoft, there's so much to know. It's absolutely unbelievably hard to do. So it turns out that Brian knows a lot about Azure, probably a lot, lot about Azure. But the thing that he knows more about, in my opinion, is networking and express route, which we'll find out what the hell that is, and other technologies. And so it's really important to know Brian is in the process of saving my can with one of our largest clients. So he isn't quite there yet. I can't piss him off during the podcast, but hopefully he will achieve you know, incredible helping us out. It's really impressive. So could you tell us what ExpressRoute is, how networking works in Azure, and the vibe of it? You know, I don't want to say go to this page in the SKU, but how does someone approach this? How does someone think about it? Sure. That's a great opener. Let's take a look first at just kind of a a quick technical run-through of ExpressRoute and then pan the camera back, if you will, a little bit and think about the higher-level value, the higher-level part of the solution and why this kind of offering exists in the industry. So at a kind of a minute level, ExpressRoute is a connectivity platform. It enables a BGP network adjacency from a customer's private WAN into Azure's private WAN. So as a private network— And what is BGP? Is it like— Big, ghastly people. What does that stand for? That would be awesome. BGP is Border Gateway Protocol. It's a really well-known, if you're into networking, well-established dynamic routing protocol that's tried and true. It is actually the glue that holds the internet together. So if I'm going to access a website halfway across the world, BGP is a really key, important technology that allows that packet to make it from one end of the internet to the other. And we're using this dynamic routing protocol for a similar outcome, to have one very large capable WAN connect to another very large capable WAN, in this case, the customer's private network connecting to Azure's private network. That's very cool. And how do you even think about it? I don't know anything about network. That's not true. Don't tell my boss. (laughs) So how do you even think about this? It solves an important business use case for a lot of customers, enterprise, but other kinds of customers as well, education, government, any kind of institution that would find itself in charge of a large network ecosystem. It solves a problem that surrounds a concept called hybridity, which means that— Love that word. Right. Good fancy buzzword, which means that as I accelerate my motion to public cloud, and in this case Azure, I'm necessarily going to have applications— that are going to live in two spaces at once, right? I'm going to have applications that live in an existing, more traditional on-prem space, and then applications that are going to be migrated, instantiated, or built in a newer public cloud space. And I need these two worlds to collaborate. So what we see, of course, is customers are trying to vacate and partner whole private data centers or managed data centers. Mm -hmm. They are... Not able to do this, of course, within the blink of an eye. It takes time and care. They're prioritizing their workloads, which needs to stay, which needs to move. So imagine if you're in charge of a data center, 
knowing that half of your data center is going to exist in its traditional location, which we call on-prem, and the other half is going to be a public cloud sphere. So it's as if you were to take a bandsaw and slice a data center down the middle. Now, if you cut this data center down the middle with this imaginary bandsaw, what would you want that connectivity to look like between the two halves of that data center? Do you want it to be the internet? If I'm taking a data center, which is already a very contiguous, highly orchestrated, coupled environment, and I'm divorcing it into two logical and physical spaces, I probably want a connectivity model between those two spaces that is very reliable, that has high performance, that is scalable, and is uh, deterministic. And what I mean by deterministic is that it works the same way every day. Variability in terms of data center behavior, change, entropy is not desired by data center architects, right? Not unless they're instrumenting it for some kind of real or some other testing purpose, right? And it's important to note as I'm going to set the stage. Brian's waving his hands. He's excited about this. This is great stuff. Yes. Right? And yes. I know it sounds to some people dry, but as a cloud solutions architect, I can tell you this is probably the most important thing that's I wish was part of my job because I need to do it, but I have to rely on experts like Brian. If you're in an enterprise in particular, you need to pay attention to that. Is that a fair thing to say? Without a doubt. Right. It's, uh, that is front and center. One of the um, biggest challenges and opportunities that enterprise is going through right now is – the motion to cloud, right? So we segregate this into two broad topics, one which is called greenfielding or cloud-native applications and services where it's non-hybrid. I'm building things top to bottom using cloud technologies and cloud offerings. And the other, which is this hybrid motion, meaning I'm migrating existing things and refactoring them to exist in the cloud. So how do you learn about this stuff? That's a great question. Some of it is just being at the right place at the right time, being in technology and being a person who is interested in the key components of cloud, the virtualization piece, the DevOps piece, AI and machine learning piece. And so just being personally invested and interested in those and kind of hanging out in the right circles. And some of it is rigorous self-study and immersing yourself in the existing information that's out there about how this is done. It's partially organic insofar as we're just now starting to see the first kind of O'Reilly-style manuals and books come out about public cloud. But cloud is still so new and it's still moving so quickly that we don't have this canonical source of information as we would on, say, information systems, databases, personal computing, right? There's not like a library shelf of this stuff yet. But yet it's so important. And I know it's important because I have CIOs of large companies yell at me. So obviously people are doing stuff, right? They're muddling along. Is it, How are they approaching getting into the Azure cloud in a secure way right now? I mean, what are most people doing? In my experience, I mean, some people are leveraging partners. They are using system integrators that Microsoft has deep relationships with to help them understand, unpack, and optimize in cloud. So there is a growing and vibrant market of uh, system integrators and partners that help enterprise accelerate their motion to cloud. Microsoft is very partner-driven. We believe, and I think we're right, that this is a fantastic way to scale and make impact. So I see a lot of action going on in the partner ecosystem for enterprises to not necessarily have to take that initial burden of that first 
first level of education and self-awareness because their motion to go to cloud now is so fast and furious. It's almost like they don't have the time to sit down and educate themselves on an end-to-end. They need to offshore that or they need to offload that. And then as they're going through the migration process, they can kind of cool down and educate. They could use certification materials. We do have a Microsoft Learning Portal. We are beginning to establish a fairly rich set of documentation for training and self-education, so it's coming. So there's that that they can use. Some of it, honestly, Lewis, is school of hard knocks still. So far, I've been knocked about a bit, but it is, again, and this is just from a survey level, my perspective. We've done networking and security design for lots of different firms at lots of different levels. I mean, people like me, cloud solutions architects I'm working with, and definitely I feel like we're not there. We. So one of the things Brian did for us three weeks ago right now was create a white paper on how to use API management and Microsoft PaaS services, platform as a service, inside the firewall. Could you tell us a little bit of the process about that and what you said to us? He's looking at me. He's like saying, what the hell is this guy making me do? Microsoft MakeCode brings computer science to life with fun projects, immediate results, and both block and text editors for learners at different levels. With MakeCode, students can build a cardboard air guitar, a magic wand, a milk carton robot, or play with MakeCode Arcade, a retro 80s game development platform. Even make it rain chickens in Minecraft. Visit MakeCode.com to get started. This is a really good emerging architecture. The reason why I'm kind of rolling my eyes is because this is addressing a problem space which is not unique to Azure, but rather common to public cloud in general. And I think I'm excited to be doing the work we're doing in Azure because I think we're building tremendous momentum for our customers here. But let me do this one justice and take some time to unpack this. So we can understand why we've arrived at where we are with this today. So when cloud was first born... I don't know where we are with this, say, 10 years ago, I think, and change, right? There was this idea, this notion that it would be optimized for DevOps, for agility, for swiping credit cards, and for greenfielding and native cloud applications. And that's where the focus of feature and platform development was. As enterprise became more and more interested in cloud and accelerated momentum into cloud, we saw them bringing a lot of their established patterns and practices and needing for cloud to accommodate that specifically and most importantly around data sovereignty and data security. Because of all of the issues and challenges we've seen in the industry with hacks, with social networking, personal information getting leaked, lost, or stolen, or sent to undesirable parties and misused and mismanaged, there's a tremendous amount of focus and pressure on enterprise to get their data loss prevention policies squared away and correct before they migrate to cloud. So this pressurizes cloud to offer solutions that try to fit both outcomes. First, a DevOps agile outcome, but also a more traditional diet-in-the-wool enterprise locked cage air-gapped outcome. And without going into too much detail, if you go into the way that these two ecosystems are provisioned and maintained, they're a bit at polar opposites of the scale, right? One is agile and is managed and doesn't have a lot of knobs. The other is fully user-owned and understood end-to-end and has dozens and dozens of knobs, right? About, I want to see this. I want this kind of analytics. I want this kind of fingerprint. So it's a lot about visibility into my data, accountability and audibility of my data, 
And that is where this private PaaS offering comes into play. It offers customers the best of both of those worlds in a blend. So they get some managed service capability and agile and scale capability, but they also get private lockdown capability. They have more control over surface area of their data, and they get forensics and auditing and visibility into what their data is doing. So we at Azure have a variety of outcomes to help our customers achieve these goals. One is called a VNet injection, where we'll take a PaaS service and box it up in a VNet for customers and privatize it. Another outcome for multi-tenant platforms that are not designed for VNet injection is called service endpoints, where we give customers a private tunnel between their virtual network and this PaaS service. So there are a lot of clever architectures here that we can develop to help customers achieve their outcome. And what's happening is that we're noticing broader trends and patterns. And so we're all starting to angle towards a North Star of how we suspect customers want to consume these services. And that's what these architectures that I'm helping to develop are leading to, which is what we think is going to be a standard way of embracing this offering. That's great. So let's go off in a slightly different direction. I don't know how the public engages with the GBB, Global Black Belts. I don't know if they even can. I am a cloud solutions architect working with high potential big clients, essentially. So when we need help, we reach out to the GBB. I don't believe there's any public way for this to happen, right? Is that right? Yes and no. It's true that Black Belt is definitely a cloistered Bunch. I mean, you know, that has to do with the fact that our job is to help Microsoft accelerate our platform for large and strategic customers. This could be in any of our key pillars. It could be in government. It could be in education. It could be in finance and enterprise. But we are meant to help be the tip of the spear for large strategic accounts. So in this way, we are a big cloister. Is Is that a fair word to say? That's absolutely fair. Right. That's one of our pillars. Don't you? Sure. I mean, we we do best practice. We do do outreach. That's where we are. We do have metrics and goals to become more publicly accessible. So not only are we focused on helping drive Azure consumption and adoption with enterprise, but also some of us are turning these designs that we're doing for our customers and trying to reach a broader audience. I have a show, Microsoft Networking Academy, that I do, which is posted to YouTube. Mm-hmm. I have a YouTube channel. It's meant for global public consumption. Yep. I want anyone and everyone to come and share in the mind space. So, and we'll yeah. share the link for that in the show notes. Cool. So it's, it's not just about being a cloistered resource. I think as the organization evolves, we're going to see more and more public-facing outreach. A lot of us do have blogs. We're active on LinkedIn. We have Twitter accounts. So, you know, there are places where we poke through. Cool. So this has been great. Can you give me five quick tips? Everyone asks for five or ten quick tips. I want to ask for four quick tips, you know, about how to gain some traction in here, things to be known about. And actually, I'm bad at counting, so who knows how many you give me. But please. (laughs) Sure. Let me talk about those tips in the context of the areas where I'm doing the most work. So the first is obviously migration, workload migration, right? The first tip I have to anyone is to make sure to think about your security planning early. So I do see a couple of customers that are 
leading with the application space and not thinking about the implications of security in a hybrid environment. And this causes some slowness to the process because once the app is envisioned in Azure, there have already been some fundamental decisions made about that architecture that are not optimized for security. So what I'm trying to say is lead with your infrastructure design. Lead with how your pipes should look. Lead with how your VNet design should look. Lead with how your secure access, your RBAC and your Azure Active Directory. Role-based access control. Lead how that should look. So build your infrastructure first. Build it in a way to where it's agnostic in some ways to the kind of workload. I mean, so you're picking ISA as a particular outcome. So fine, build your infrastructure in a way to be supportive and flexible for IaaS scale without concerning yourself as an architect so much about what that IaaS instance is running. If you build your architecture correctly, it shouldn't really matter what that IaaS instance is running, just like it shouldn't really matter what's in my data center. I've built the data center correctly. Another piece of information is don't assume that we don't understand the full scale of hybridity at Microsoft, meaning that we, of course— love and cherish our customers and want them to, you know, put all their data estate in Azure. But we understand that enterprises have different needs, that there's a multi-vendor strategy. Our ecosystem is set up to accommodate a multi-cloud environment, meaning that ExpressRoute allows for, and in some ways, we're not, you know, forthcoming about this all the time, but kind of encourages a cross-platform capability. So in the colo, in the data center hotel where our ExpressRoute edge is located, the other clouds and service offerings and partners all have their major ecosystem offerings. And this isn't just other public clouds. There's other key players here in the space, Silverline by F5, Zscaler, a lot of system integrator work. So don't feel that by choosing ExpressRoute and Microsoft Azure that you're painting yourself into a corner. In fact, it's extremely flexible and you can have a lot of variability in that model. So that's really cool. And then I, I think a third thing that I would advise customers on is think deeply about how you want your security and IT infrastructure to look in the cloud. There is currently, it's beginning to happen, a shift about using my existing security appliance ecosystem, my firewalls, my intrusion detection devices, my load balancers and application delivery controllers, just keeping those on-prem and drawing all my public cloud traffic out of Azure and then into on-prem and then back again. That works, but at some point, to really hit maximum velocity, you need to think about OPEX versus CAPEX. So in this sense, try to think about harnessing what I call the virtual DMZ model, where we look at either having that same vendor, your network virtual appliance vendor of choice in your Azure virtual network, or looking at Azure offerings like the Azure Firewall, the Azure WAF, uh, et cetera, to, to complement this. Because when you start building your secure DMZ in cloud, you're going to hit all of those good things that cloud offers, which is scale, agility, managed service, and utility billing. Well, that was three, but you have to give us four. That was four? my number. Four? Oh, man. He, man, he's like breathing okay. hard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that for those customers that are embracing software-defined wide area networking, which we know as SD-WAN, 
know that Azure is developing a really cool platform. In fact, we have a really cool platform. It's just continuously growing called Azure WAN. So I've spent a lot of time today talking about ExpressRoute, which is basically an extension of MPLS, which is a very well-established way of designing a private network. It's multi-protocol label switching. It's been around for decades. All the big service providers have this as their technology of choice for private networking. MPLS is tried and true, but there is a big and vibrant movement now to use a different kind of system called SD-WAN to accomplish a similar outcome, which basically says, instead of using a private network, install smart appliances all around my edge sites and, and corp sites and use the internet as my private backbone. And what these intelligent gateways will do is create tunnels, IPsec tunnels, create a mesh over the internet, and they will use intelligent traffic algorithms to basically create an outcome where you have path variety and path choice and path determinism such that if one part of the internet begins to slow down, that SD-WAN appliance can seamlessly guide traffic to a faster part of the internet to kind of overcome some of the difficulties of the internet. So we grok this at Azure. We have an Azure WAN platform that embraces SD-WAN connectivity. And so I would tell customers that are leaning towards SD-WAN or getting into SD-WAN to look at Azure WAN as a way to connect into cloud and not worry so much that ExpressRoute is the only way to do it. Wow. My head's spinning. I think I led with the preamble, of course, that I know Brian because he's helping me out because Lord knows I need this sort of help and things. And we're going to try to have a whole mess of links with this. And thank you so much for joining us today. This has been the Azure Ability Podcast. Our guest, Brian Woodworth, has been gracious to tell us all sorts of things that are making my head spinning. But you on the other end of this probably are not. You're so smart. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. You've been listening to Azure Ability, a podcast for everyone interested in the art and science of developing solutions for the Microsoft Azure platform. Be sure to visit our website, azureability.com, for show notes, helpful links, and other episodes. We'd also love to receive your questions and comments. On behalf of your host, Lewis Berman, and the many friends of the podcast, thanks for listening.